We're continuing in the Psalms for those of you who uh, are with us the first time this morning. Um, we recently finished John's Gospel, and so we're going to spend a little bit of time in the Psalms before we uh, go to Esther um, in September. Um, cries of the heart is kind of the theme that we're taking up, and um, if I can get to Psalm 62, that would be awesome. Okay. To the choir master, according to Jejuthun, a psalm of David. For God alone my soul waits in silence. From him comes my salvation. He alone is my rock and my salvation, my fortress. I shall not be greatly shaken. How long will all of you attack a man to batter him, like a leaning wall, like a tottering fence? They only plan to thrust him down from his high position. They take pleasure in falsehood. They bless with their mouths, but inwardly they curse. For God alone, O oh my soul, wait in silence. For my hope is from Him. He only is my rock and my salvation, my fortress. I shall not be shaken. On God rests my salvation and my glory. My mighty rock, my refuge is God. Trust in Him at all times, O peoples. Pour out your heart before Him. God is a refuge for us. Those of low estate are but a breath. Those of high estate are a delusion. In the balances they go up. They are together lighter than a breath. Put no trust in extortion. Set no vain hopes on robbery. If riches increase, set not your heart upon them. Once God has spoken, twice have I heard this, that power belongs to God, and that to you, O Lord, belongs steadfast love, for you will render to a man according to his work. Amen. May God bless the reading of his word this morning. Let's pray. Father, according to the riches of your glory, grant that we would be strengthened with power through the Spirit in our inmost being, so that Christ may dwell in our hearts by faith, that we may be rooted and grounded in love, and may have strength to comprehend the breadth and length, and height and depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that we may be filled with the fullness of God. Accomplish this through the reading and preaching of your word. In the name of Jesus, amen. I was a rather young Christian, and uh, I worked in a bookstore. And so when I had a bit of a hard time, I felt you know, drawn towards the religion section of this bookstore to try and find some books to read. 
And one of the books that I found to read is one that was uh, probably very familiar to you. You've probably heard of it if you haven't even read it. Uh, that is by Rabbi Kushner. When bad things happen to good people. Okay, there's some, oh yes, perhaps I've read this book. He talks about the struggle to comprehend, essentially, God and the reality of affliction. And what Rabbi Kushner does is he talks about the power of God, and he talks about the love of God, and he looks at life and he says, if God is all-powerful and if God is love, then why in the world is there such a mess? And so what, in essence, Rabbi Kushner does is he plays the power of God against the love of God. Because, in his mind, he cannot be both, and therefore, bad things happening to what he thinks are good people. And so either God is essentially an all-powerful tyrant who is lacking in love, or God is a very weak but loving God. And so essentially where he goes is this idea that essentially God is a parent. Um, not the perfect parent, but a parent sort of like me, who loves his children, but is unable to perfectly protect his children. That's where Rabbi Kushner ends up. And that's where he wants his readers to end up. And I praise God that is not where I ended up. Okay? But what we believe will inevitably arise to the surface on this matter when we wake up in the morning and discover that shortly after we went to bed, some man goes into a nightclub in Orlando, Florida, and shoots well over a 100 people, killing 50 of them. These questions will arise and should arise. For these people that were shot had not committed any sin against Omar Mateen. Whether they sinned against God, obviously, is a different question. The question I'm focusing on is whether they sinned against him, and as far as we can tell, the answer would be no. What do we do with it? We have to go to places like Psalm 62, in order to understand a little bit of what's going on, in order that we might find hope and trust in a world that doesn't play by the rules we think it should play by. The big idea this morning is that we are to trust the power and love of Christ in the midst of crisis. And we have to recognize that crisis comes to all God's children. And, of course, I use that in an evangelical sense, not a um, foreign sense. In other words, people who have been adopted by God through Jesus Christ. That is the sense in which I use God's children this morning. Crisis is not the focus of this psalm, but it does form the backdrop of this psalm. And because it forms the backdrop, that's why the, the, the call to trust makes sense. Okay, Uh, David is trusting in the midst of crisis. This is not about trusting when everything is rosy, perfect, 
We see that King David was not immune from crisis. In fact, what I believe is going on here is uh, what we last week we talked about when Nathan showed up after the incident with Bathsheba, and one of the things that he said was in addition to the child dying was that strife was going to come to the house of David. Okay, and so the events that are I think behind this particular psalm are the conflict that strikes David's household. That seems to make the most sense of what we find in this particular place. The complaints that David raises in the midst of this psalm appear to fit the idea of Absalom's revolt or something very similar to it, but we don't have anything similar to it in Scripture, so I'm going with Absalom's revolt, which we read about from Second Samuel. David puts it this way, How long... Will all of you attack a man to batter him like a leaning wall, like a tottering fence? And the picture here seems to be sort of like a boxer who's on the ropes. He's teetering. He's on the brink of falling. But it's not just one opponent that is pummeling him, but other opponents seem to join in and to beat on him, hoping that they can topple him permanently. So David appears, uh, sees himself in great distress at this point in time. People viewed David as vulnerable, in other words. They're like sharks drawn to blood that's in the water. They're now circling him, and David feels uh, very vulnerable, very afraid of what's going on. As we, if we continued further on in the account in Second Samuel, we would see that there is Shemai who meets David as David is fleeing the city, and what he does is he rains curses down upon David's head. We heard about Ahithophel. David's counselor, who had betrayed David and joined the the, uh, conspiracy with Absalom. There were people close to David who betrayed him, seeking to topple him. And behind all of this, we cannot, if we're faithful to the Scriptures, uh, forget that there is the evil one, the one who is like a roaring lion who perceives vulnerability and raises up people against us. We must think of uh, incidents like what happened to Job. First, there's a storm. Flocks are gone. Children are dead. And then come the Sabaeans. And then come the Chaldeans, and they come and they steal various parts of his wealth. It's sort of like that. And Job, like David, was reeling. We see David continues further. This plan to thrust him down, Absalom's coup, because he had stolen the hearts of the people and now was coming to steal the throne of David to thrust him down. Not just to remove him, but ultimately to kill him. And David speaks about how they speak lies. And they delighted in speaking lies. But these are lies that 
people, others speak about you, so to speak. They're, they're speaking lies about David. We heard some of those lies when we read from Second Samuel as Absalom is at the gate. Is Oh, it's too bad David has no one to take care of your case. Okay? He was lying. David was a relatively good king. As we see in Scripture, he was the model king despite his sins. And he most likely was pursuing righteousness and justice within his kingdom. And so Absalom is lying to steal the hearts of the people. We are sometimes unjustly accused of things. For instance, a few weeks ago you heard about how I live with a woman I don't know, apparently, as a lawyer accused my wife of being someone other than I know her to be. We see this on display on Facebook all of the time right now. I'm, I may stop uh, being on Facebook for a while. Because of the, the election, I'm going to lose my mind. <laughs> all of the lies that are spoken by people on both sides of the fence. Politicians themselves seem to speak their native tongue. They lie a lot, even though some people claim they're inherently honest. I'm not sure how people who are inherently honest can speak so many lies, but that's the case. Absalom, and it talks about David here, says, you speak blessing, but in heart, your heart you curse. And so what happens here is that Absalom acted like he wants David's love. He got Job to, to have David bring him back from exile. He speaks about how he wants to go and offer sacrifices out of thanksgiving for, for God's grace. And all the while, what he really is doing is he's plotting to destroy David. Cursing David. And so this crisis in the life of David seems to loom large. He's running for his life. Okay? And as we think about this for a moment, I want us to stop. I want us to remember Christ for a moment. Because Jesus experienced many of these, many of these very same struggles... We see Jesus, who was completely misunderstood by his family. His brothers thought he was crazy. Jesus, who was betrayed by one of his best friends, who was denied by another one of his very best friends, the inner circle and Peter. Jesus, who was hounded by the religious authorities, there were many attempts that were made upon his life, not just one in the crucifixion. But Jesus knows exactly what it's like to be in David's shoes. And so when you are struggling, because you know you don't have to be a king to face a crisis, we face crises of all kinds. If you're a parent, you have a troubled teenager. It might be drugs, might be something else, you don't know, but you know how difficult it is. Even if when you're, you have adult children who are in trouble, your heart breaks. Some of you know the crises of unemployment and underemployment. 
We know these difficulties. We can be children and watch our parents go through terrible things. Illnesses, divorce. And so crises are a part of life. And it's important for us to remember that Christ has experienced crises and that Jesus is our great high priest. And because He is one who has experienced crises, who has experienced weakness, He's able from the throne of grace, as it talks about in Hebrews 4, to give us mercy and grace in our time of need. And so Jesus is a a well-equipped, prepared, and trained great high priest for when crisis comes to His people. And so Jesus experienced crises in order to be our merciful high priest when crisis comes. So first, we see crisis comes to all God's children. Secondarily, crisis comes to reset our hopes. Let's get to some of the purpose of crisis. You see, you and I, what happens when crisis comes, at least with me, is I want the pain and the fear to end. And so we look for the quick fix. We look for the false hope. In other words, crisis inevitably brings temptation to us to wiggle our way out. What's interesting in this psalm is that six times this tiny word appears okay, in the Hebrew. And it's usually placed in a position of emphasis to make a point. This word is translated variously in the psalm. Sometimes it's translated alone. Sometimes it's translated only. But it always gets back to that exclusivity idea. And we see it repeatedly. God alone. He alone. Other places For God alone, He only is my rock. It's always paired with Him. This is pointing us to that fact of Jesus plus nothing. The psalmist needs God and only God. Not God and something or someone else in the midst of his crisis. Why is it that only God can help him? Well, one aspect of this is seen in in this uh, strange thing we find there in verse 8, sorry, 9. Those of low estate and those of high estate, and that's one of those poetic things called a mirrorism. He's, he's, he's talking about the two extremes to include everything in between, okay? And so whether uh, we're talking about people of no status and people of the highest status, they are but a vapor, a breath. Aside when we're talking about the breath of God, the breath of man is like nothing. It's there It's gone. This is the same word that we find repeatedly throughout Ecclesiastes, talking about that vanity. That's what it is, emptiness, nothingness. And so he's talking about how people, both great and small and everything in between, are nothing 
whether they are the threat or they are the perceived solution. Because that's what we, interestingly enough, do. When we're threatened by a person, we often seek the help of another person. Don't. We look to our best friend for help, and that is a natural sort of response on our part. But we have to remember that that person is but a breath. That ultimately, while they might be a means that God uses to help us, they are not where our hope is to lie. People cannot rescue us or destroy us because they are nothing. Let's go back to David for a moment. He's on the run from Absalom. If I'm David, who would I trust aside from God? Who might I, you know, kind of bring up, so to speak, if I'm writing a song? Man, I got the mighty men. There's whole sections in Scripture about, G- about uh, David's mighty men. And of course, there's my favorite that my youngest son was almost named after, Benaiah. Okay, the guy in the pit with the, the lion on the snowy day and the, the one who fell upon all of David's enemies when it was time to settle the scores when he was dead and Solomon was king. Benaniah was one bad man. Okay? And David had a whole bunch of really bad men. He had seals, so to speak, the Navy seals of his day, the Delta Force of his day, and David wasn't relying on them. On God alone. David repeatedly said, because while they might be mighty men compared to others, they are just a vapor. And so what we see as well is that David, you know, if we continue in the story in 2 Samuel, David wants his son to live. And so David uh, knew something of what Paul would write later, so to speak, as the same idea that we see Paul expressing in Romans 12. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God, for it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. In other words, David did not seek vengeance against his son. He figured God can deal with that. But he wanted, in a sense, the rebellion to be over. James picks up on this idea of the uh, the vaporous nature of our life in uh, chapter 4. Yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring. What is your life? For you are a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. Gone. We remember the name of David. We remember the name of Absalom. Remember the name of about six or seven other people whose names are given to us in the Scriptures, but the vast majority of the people in Israel at that day don't know who they are. A mist. Here and gone. David continues, Put no trust in extortion. If riches increase, do not set your heart upon them. And so this is another thing we tend to rely upon, not just people, but we tend to rely upon money to deliver us. 
whether it is properly gained or improperly gained, that idea of the robbery or extortion, okay? Um, there's a warning here about uh, getting money unjustly. We see this reflects what we find in Proverbs 14, Leviticus 19, all of that kind of stuff. But ultimately, we think wealth will isolate us from problems. That wealth will isolate us from crises. And if there's anything that we should have picked up on in recent weeks is that wealth did not keep Prince away from addiction. An addiction that killed him. That wealth and fame did not keep Muhammad Ali safe from Parkinson's disease, which ultimately killed him. And so that's why we should not set our hearts on our wealth. Because ultimately, they cannot stay reality. So let's ask a deeper question. What's going on? Why is David in this crisis? And why do crises tend to come upon us in the first place? This week, I happened to be studying for a Sunday school lesson on the providence of God. Um, you're probably not going to have this lesson if you go to Sunday school until like November. So, you know, I'm, I'm trying to get ahead. I'm in the Westminster Confession. It's chapter 5, paragraph 5. The most wise, righteous, and gracious God does sometimes leave for a season his own children to manifold temptations and the corruption of their own hearts to chastise them for their former sins or to discover unto them the hidden strength of corruption and deceitfulness of their hearts that they may be humbled and to raise them to a more close and constant dependence for their support upon himself and to make them more watchful against all future occasions of sin and for sundry other just and holy ends. Okay, You like how they threw in at the end that there are other reasons beyond these we have just listed, okay? That's a good thing to say sometimes. There's two of these reasons I want us to focus on this morning as we think about the life of David and as well as our own lives, that this, I would say, may have come, I should say, did come, because we know from Nathan that it was prophesied, but to chastise David for his previous sin. We know that this is corrective in nature. It is not punitive. It's not punishment. Okay? God had mercy, but God is also trying to teach David to walk faithfully, to be a good king. And so sometimes the crises that come into our lives are indeed connected to past sins that we have committed to instruct us to keep us from doing those things again. When we discipline our children, that is the real thing. It's not that we're putting them in jail for committing crimes, we believe. And actually, um, Christ has died for the sins of our children, and we're trying to instruct them to keep them from destroying themselves by their sin. So there's that that's going on. But we see as well that God works to reveal the sinfulness of our heart in a particular way, and that is all that we rely upon besides Jesus. In other words, He's at work to expose our idols. 
the places we run to for safety when, when we're in trouble. So that we can stop running there and start going to the one place, the one person that we desperately need. He reveals all that we rely upon besides Jesus so that we, as it says in the confession, to raise them to a more close and constant dependence for their support upon himself. He's trying to wean us from our idols so that we rely more fully upon him. Okay? So that's why we find things like we do in 2 Corinthians 4. We are afflicted in every way, but not crushed. Perplexed, but not driven to despair. Persecuted, but not forsaken. Struck down, but not destroyed. Always carrying in the body the death of Jesus, so the life of Christ may be manifested in our bodies. And so Paul is talking about how we experience these crises so that not our strength is revealed, but the strength of Jesus is revealed. And so crises come so that we will learn to rely upon Him, to rely upon His strength, not our own and not the strength of others. And so these crises come to reveal what's really going on in our hearts, what we really trust in, as well as to then shift our allegiances, our reliance upon to Christ. And so crisis comes to reveal what we really trust in so that we'll begin to put our hopes more fully in Christ. Thirdly, and really the, the bon- not the bonus point, the real, the real gist of the matter here, rest in the character of Christ alone. The point of this is ultimately the object of David's trust That we get back to that alone thing. For God alone my soul waits. He expresses his exclusive trust in God at the very beginning of this psalm. And he expresses the calming effect in this crisis. He waits in silence. In other words, he's not in turmoil at this moment. Where you and I probably would be. David apparently wasn't. But David knows that this is not an absolute state that will continue on forever because he knows that he will waver over time. And we see in verse 5, For God alone, O my soul, wait in silence. He commands himself to wait in silence. Okay? And so on the one hand, he knows at this moment, I'm waiting. But in the future, I may not wait. I need to remind myself to wait. In silence on God and God alone. Okay, so David's honest. Okay, we should be encouraged by this. David too was weak and knew he needed to wait on God and that there are times when he was not going to wait on God. And he gives two reasons why he waits upon God. The first off is power belongs to the Lord. And the point is, is that God uses His power for us. Now, let's not mistake it. This is not what Rabbi Kushner would be saying. Well, if God is all-powerful, God would keep us away from problems. 
that God would utilize, if he really loved us, this power to prevent crisis in our lives. Really what we see here more is God using his power to preserve us in the midst of crises. Rather than keep us from these crises for the very reasons we noted earlier. Okay? We have a number of pictures of his power. He is my rock. He is my fortress. He is a refuge for us. All of these speak to his power, to his protection, to his faithfulness, to his ability to deliver. This is not the only psalm. Later on, we're going to sing, A mighty fortress is our God, and that is taken from Psalm 46. God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. And then a similar thought. Be still and know that I am God. And so, even in Psalm 46, these ideas are joined. God is powerful, therefore I can be still. And trust Him, even though all hell seems to break loose around me. We see in Proverbs 18, the name of the Lord is a strong tower, and the righteous man runs into it and is safe. So these promises that we have, these pictures that we have of God as our rock and our fortress are all fulfilled in Jesus Christ. He is our rock. He is our fortress. He is our refuge. We see His power is displayed in the resurrection. In the, in the book, The Two Towers, the small kingdom of Rohan is about to be besieged from one of the two towers mentioned in the book, the, the wicked sorcerer, Sauron has, uh, oh, sorry, Solomon has uh, raised up a freakish orc army that is about to overrun Rohan. And they know they cannot defend the capital city, and so where do they run? The rock of safety, the fortress, the refuge, Helm's Deep, the place they know that they can defend, so to speak. And so we, when, when crisis rears its head, we are to run to Christ. He is our helm's deep. Not that we can defend, but that He defends us. He is our, or intended to be, our helm's deep. So, this power is revealed in our weakness not in our strength. As Paul discovered and told us in 2 Corinthians 12, he experienced weakness. He pleaded three times, God, take this thorn in the flesh away from me. And God said, no, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. And so again, we see that the picture of God and His power is very different than what Rabbi Kushner thinks a powerful God looks like. This power is meant to be revealed as well in judgment. He culminates this psalm with that God will render to a man according to his work. 
that Omar Mateen, so to speak, the shooter in Orlando, he will not escape the justice of God. God will render to him according to his wickedness. And God will render all men according to their wickedness. Which is why we read from Romans 2. We, are, we need to be reminded from Romans 6 that the wages of sin is death. This is what we earn. And apart from the free gift of God in Christ Jesus, we will not have eternal life. But we see that God is able to vindicate those who are right. God is able to bring the liars and the schemers to justice. And so if you have been betrayed and the victim of injustice, don't worry. God will deal with it. It may not be in the time frame that you want, but He will, in fact, deal with it. So trust Him. Secondly, to you, O Lord, belongs steadfast love. It's almost like David was reading Rabbi Kushner's book. Okay? Power, love, hesed. He is loyal towards us. He is both all-powerful and all-love for His people. He wants to be our refuge, in other words. He wants to vindicate us, and He does. And we see this displayed, this love displayed most clearly in the cross as He dies for His people to provide the atoning sacrifice for sin. He delivers us from the wrath of God that we deserve for our sin, but He also delivers us from the wrath of men who would seek to destroy us. Okay. And so, David recommends that people trust in Him at all times. Not just in the good times, and not just in the bad times. Because sometimes we're prone to forget God in the good times. Okay, trust Him at all times. Pour out your heart before Him. In other words, trust is intended to be displayed in prayer, a casting of these burdens upon God. And so that's why we see some of these burdens listed in this psalm. David is not just speaking to you and to me, but he's speaking to God. How long will these people accuse me? How long will they try to topple me? I'm trusting in you with, with this, my God. Because with you I know there is power, and with you I know there is love, that you are faithful to your covenant. You have made a covenant with me, and you're going to be faithful to it. And it's because of the new covenant that Peter encourages us in chapter 5 of his first letter to humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God. Okay, we have the strength of God so that at the proper time He may exalt you, casting all your anxieties on Him because He cares for you. And in that statement, we have the love of God for His people. His mighty hand and His care are joined together forever for His people. And so we see that Rabbi Kushner was wrong. Trials don't mean that either God is powerless or that God doesn't love us. Crises come into our lives to reveal just how impotent our other refuges are. 
whether it's money, whether it's power, whether it's the government, so that we are driven to Jesus in whom all power and love dwell. In other words, God wants us to discover the depth of God's power, as we prayed from Ephesians 3 earlier. To know the depths of God's love at work for us in Christ Jesus. And we never know His strength, and we never know His love unless we actually rely on them as if they're the only thing we have. They are meant to bear us through and bear us up as a mature David discovered. So why don't we pray? Father, not many of us have arrived at the level of maturity of David that is expressed in this psalm, and it's only because of the work of your Holy Spirit. It's only because David had gone through so many trials before that. It's only because he had to face Goliath, that he had to run from Saul, and so much more. And so, Father, continue to teach us more and more about your love and power for us in Jesus so that we can have that calm trust, so that we can begin to wait in silence for You, so that we can pour out our hearts to You as an act of trust, not as a, some sign that we don't trust. And so Father, as we, as we go through trials, and I know there are people in this room who are going through very difficult trials right now, May you work by the Spirit to produce this in them. To encourage them. To set their hearts and hopes upon Jesus in the midst of these trials. In the midst of these tears. We ask that you would do these things and so glorify your grace amongst your people, and amongst the angels who watch. In Jesus' name, amen.